If you guys need to grab a Bible, we have them in the back, uh, but if you have your Bibles, turn them to Matthew chapter 4. Um, today's message uh, throughout the gospel can be found in uh, Matthew 4, also Luke chapter 4, and Mark's abbreviated version of everything is two sentences in the book of Mark in chapter 1. And so it's always interesting when you read through the Gospels where Luke and Matthew will take uh, a chapter and they'll have like one or two stories in it and then Mark will pack in like eight into one chapter. He's just like, I'm going to give you the nuts and bolts and here it is. So anyway, here's what I want you to do. Um, This may be painful, but you can suck it up. I want you to think about the worst date you've ever had. Now, if it was last night and the person that was on the date with you is sitting next to you, maybe think of one that's further back. Uh, What was the date that if you thought about it, you're like, man, that was the date from hell, all right? So we said it, we'll embrace it. Uh, What was that date for you? Uh, What went wrong? Maybe uh, the food was horrible, maybe the service was awful, Uh, maybe your date was just awful. Uh, I don't know what it was. I started thinking about the things that I've had occur in dates that I've had before. And uh, at one time I had a flat tire, one time I got a speeding ticket, Uh, just all these different things. I had one date in high school and because of the internet I'm going to refrain from really big details on it. But I knew within like two minutes with the person that this would have, this is the only date we were ever going to be on. And thankfully, we went to a movie, uh, Rattle and Hum with you two. That was too much information. Um, But I remember it. That was 1988. (laughs) Um, But I knew there wasn't going to be a second date. Um, And I just wish somebody would have told her (laughs) there wasn't going to be a second date. Um, But yeah, it's just horrible, horrible stuff. Um, Sarah and I, one time for our anniversary, went up to San Francisco and it was the worst weekend we've ever had together. We fought the entire time, mostly because she committed the ultimate sin of telling me how to drive. <laughs> and that just set it off right there. We're leaving Los Angeles. We're heading to San Francisco. And the woman dared, the woman dared to tell me not to drive with my knee as I was eating driving 80. I don't know what she was thinking. So that was our date from hell. Uh, But today, we're going to look at Jesus, who actually has a date with one who is actually from hell. He is going to have a date with Satan, and we're going to look at how he handled it, and how then we can learn from it, because it's going to happen to us at some point in time. And to kind of set this up, I want to move back to California real quick, because when I first moved to California from Colorado Springs in 2005, and I've mentioned this before, but the one thing I was looking forward to most is, does anybody know? earthquakes. I was just so excited. I had never experienced one, so I'm like, yes, earthquakes, let's go. And so uh, what I learned, though, and what people encouraged me to do, before you experience your earthquake, what you need to do is you need to earthquake-proof your home. And so I learned what this looked like. Basically, we would attach furniture and TVs, things like that, to the wall, basically attach it in a way that it can still move, but it's not going to fall. And so everything that I had, except I forgot one thing. I forgot the fishbowl, which, yeah. All right. So so I attach everything, and I I earthquake-proof 
uh, our apartment as best as I could, and then the waiting game happens because I don't know when it's going to happen, and I, I don't know the exact moment it's going to happen, but I do know there is going to be an earthquake, and I'm going to enjoy every single second of it. Uh, at least that's what I thought. Here's what I know. It's going to happen. And I can choose to prepare for it, or can I can choose to ignore it. And when I start thinking about the stuff that we're going to have to deal with in our life and the temptations that Satan is going to throw our way, we can, we can choose to prepare for it, or we can choose to ignore it. And if we make the choice to ignore it, then most likely what will happen is there will be a lot of damage. There will be devastation in our lives because we chose to simply not prepare. And that's what will happen. And so, this morning we're just going to learn. We're going to learn from Jesus of what, it's, what it could be like when Satan comes and just tries to rock and shake us up a bit. <clears throat> and we want to el eliminate or basically... Uh, reduce the amount of damage that is left behind. But what he wants to do, what Satan wants to do, is he wants to tempt you. He wants to test you. And he wants you to take your focus off of God and place it simply on yourself. I remember Francis Chan saying, you know what it looks like to worship Satan? It doesn't mean that you're dressing up in red and worshiping something with horns. It means you basically are worshiping yourself. So if you turn to Matthew, I'm actually going to start in chapter 3 and kind of hit where we left off last week. And if you're new with us, we're basically just studying the life of Jesus, chronological life of Jesus. And uh, this is going to be the never-ending series. It's going to go and go and go, but if we're going to settle in and study anything, we've just settled on the idea of, uh, of studying Jesus. So Mark chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, this is what it says. After his baptism, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. And as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw, this is John saw, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling onto Jesus. And a voice from heaven, God, says this, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. What an amazing moment, right? Especially for Jesus. He comes out of the water. Holy Spirit, like a dove, settles on him, and then dad speaks up, and dad is like, ooh, this is my boy. I'm so proud of him. He brings me pleasure. He brings me joy. I love him. And everybody who's had a really good relationship, father, son-wise, knows that that voice from dad and the accolades and the admiration and the encouragement, all those kind of things mean the world to us. When my dad gives me encouragement, man... That go, it runs deep for me. And so for, for this to happen is pretty amazing. This is a mountaintop experience. Watch what happens because the very next word in Matthew chapter 4 is the word then. Which means there is no separation. This is what happens next. It says that Jesus didn't go celebrate for a week off in the Mediterranean. It means then, immediately. It says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Greek word for tempted could also be translated for tested. 
He went and was tested by the devil. Isn't that strange? This is my son. I'm so proud of him. Good job. You bring me joy. I love you so much. Now I'm going to lead you out into the desert and you're going to be tempted by the devil. That's so strange. What loving father does that to his son? In all my years growing up, my dad never, you know, was like, hey, great job. Now I'm going to lead you out into the wilderness. I'm going to leave you alone and you're going to be tempted by the devil. This is weird. But it's what God does. He leads him out. And if I'm Jesus, I'm like, really? No open house back at the home? No baptism birthday party that we like to throw for people? No. I'm going to have the Spirit lead you out into the wilderness where you'll be tempted by Satan. And it's right here. And this happens often, but it's where Jesus' story and our story kind of overlap a little bit where the things that Jesus went through and the things that we'll go through kind of have some similarities. But what's going to happen here is similar, but it's not the same. And the reason it's not the same, the reason it's not exactly the same when Jesus is tested and when we are tested is because I have a sinful nature and you have a sinful nature. Jesus does not. And so it is similar but it is not exactly the same. He is also fully man, fully God. So he understands both. But it was important for Jesus to experience the temptations that we're going to experience day to day. Even in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God is saying, I want to know, I, I want you to understand that, I, understand, that I, I, I know what you're going through a little bit. I can relate to you. He's a father that can relate to his children, that the things that you and I are going to go through, he has also experienced. In fact, he says, and I want to show you how you can deal with it and overcome it. And so, there's a lot that we can learn from how Jesus is going to respond to Satan while out in the wilderness. And I would encourage you, pay attention. Because it's maybe the things that you can apply. Verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, (laughs) he was hungry. You think? (laughs) 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Jesus was hungry. If you don't believe it, try it. Fast for 40 days, and you'll find that you are not only hungry, but even more than hungry is you'll be, you'll be exhausted. You'll be physically weak. And the hunger pains actually go away after the first week. So the hunger is kind of secondary to the physical exhaustion that Jesus would be feeling. Verse 3 says, During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are, can also be translated, since you are, the devil knows who he is, but since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. This is the danger. 
all right? It's like if I'm going to choose when to go grocery shopping, or grocery shopping, there's a big difference in my bill if I go, if I am full or if I am hungry. Are you guys with that same thing for you? Which is why you go to Sam's Club and you just sample as much as you can because then you'll buy less maybe or maybe you'll end up buying more. But it's just, it's what happens. When I have fasted for extended period of time, the most evil place on the planet, in my opinion, is Burger King. Because Burger King pumps out the smell and when you're driving by and you have the window down, it's like, if only Burger King tasted as good as it smelled. That's that was it. But I would drive trying to go around Burger King because the hunger pains are there. I would smell it and I'd be like, I don't want that temptation. I'm going to avoid it with everything that I have. But Jesus is physically weak and hungry. And Satan simply says, hey, I bet you could enjoy some rolls right now. All you have to do is take these rocks, turn them into bread. You have the power, right? I mean, son of God, you can do that. Which I think if Jesus was going to make rolls, it'd be like Texas Roadhouse rolls, Lambert's Cafe in Missouri where they throw them at you. It's just, oh. And Jesus has the ability to turn these stones into bread. And at first glance, we would think, well, what would be wrong with that? What would be wrong with Jesus taking the stones and turning them into bread? I mean, obviously he's hungry. He has the power to do so. What would be wrong with that? Here's why it would be wrong for him to do so. For Jesus to use his divine powers for selfish gain would not be right. And would actually destroy three years of a ministry tour that he had laying ahead of him. So before it even gets started, it would not start out the way that God would want it to start. This is not the right time for Jesus to display the power of the Father, but instead resist. And so here's how Jesus responds in verse 4. He says, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus' first response is God's word. He goes to Scripture. He quotes a verse from Deuteronomy. In fact, all three occurrences, Jesus is going to go to the book of Deuteronomy. He's going to say, but the Scriptures say this. So verse 5 and 6, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. The passage of scripture that Satan is referring to is Psalm 91. And you can read it. And if you read it, you would notice that it is misquoted. Satan misses part of the verse. But I want you to understand, the enemy will use everything in his arsenal to go at you and to go at me. Everything that he has, including God's word, and he knows it. He knows it well. And I believe that today, we're seeing him use this at a high level. 
when Scripture is being twisted and molested to move people further away from what I believe God's design and intentions are for your life. And I'll hear people say, well, that Scripture didn't really mean this or that. And Satan, when he, when he does the Scripture, when he quotes it, he says, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, but he misses this, he misses in all your ways, which is a significant part of the passage. But Jesus responds in verse 7 and says, the Scriptures also say that you must not test the Lord your God. So Jesus again responds with a quoting him from Deuteronomy. For Jesus to jump from the temple would be putting God to the test to provide an outcome that would be anything outside of the laws of nature. And I feel like, you know what? We still do this today. We still try to test God. We'll make deals with Him. They'll say, well, if, if I do this, if you're really God, you'll do this. Uh, I went to school in East Tennessee for college, and I heard about these churches up in the hills. This is like Redneck Central. Um, but at these churches, they were very charismatic, but they took it to a new level because I heard that what they would do is they would have these boxes with holes that had snakes, venomous snakes, and they would start dancing around holding the snakes. And you may have seen this on TV where they'll basically say, we have the faith that uh, because of our relationship with God, these snakes will not bite or kill us. And so what are they doing? Well, they're testing God. And many of them have been bitten and many have died <laughs> because that's the, evidently they weren't where they needed to be with God or they were just shouldn't have been testing God. And a lot of us would be like, well, yeah, well, we don't do that. We don't test God in that way. We're not holding up snakes and dancing around. But I would say we, we test God today. I still do it. You know, if you get me out of this situation, I'll make sure I never do this again. Well, if you really are God, you'll do this. And we test Him. Verse 8 says, Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He says, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. And this is an interesting question for Satan to ask because the first questioner that, that I would have, that we would have, is, is it really Satan's to offer? Is it really Satan's to offer to Jesus? And the answer is yes and no. And the reason we say that is because Satan is known as the ruler or prince, the God of this world. Even Jesus in, in John 14.30 uh, refers to Satan as the ruler or the prince of this world. But I want to make sure we understand, this position is temporary. It is not forever. It is temporary. Satan's dominance does not have power over God. He doesn't have dominance or power over Jesus. Jesus actually has power over Satan, which we find out later in the Gospels when a demon-possessed guy uh, known as Legion, because there was many, 
And basically, Jesus will rebuke them and they will leave on his command. He has no power over him. Jesus is the one person that can basically look at Satan and tell him to go to hell, go home, and he would have to obey. Verse 10 says, Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says, then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. And a few things uh, that I just want to bring to our attention this morning when we read through this passage. At this point, Jesus has finally had enough. And he tells Satan, you, know, you need to get lost. And then again, Jesus returns to Scripture, reminds us that we are to worship God and worship Him only. And I find it amazing that all three of the temptations that Jesus went through are things that we struggle with today. The three roots of it are pleasure, power, and pride. Pleasure, power, and pride which usually are at the root of almost everything that we struggle with. Think about the sin. Think about the struggles that you have in your life. And I did this week, every single one of them. And somewhere in it, I could find pleasure, power, or pride. And when we are able to endure and overcome the things that Satan is throwing our way, God is actually going to reward us. James 1.12 says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. And afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. So the first question, I'm going to ask some questions. The first question we have is, where does temptation come from? Well, we would obviously say the devil comes from Satan, but there's actually two places where our temptation comes from. The first one doesn't surprise us, but the second one at first might, but then we're like, yeah, that makes sense. The devil, the evil one, the master of lies, the great deceiver, and the second is this, it's you. The, the desires that we have within us, the desires that you have within you. And when those two things come together, we have a temptation. Temptation will ensue. James 1.14 says that temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. which is very contrary to what I hear from a lot of people sometimes. And obviously, I did student ministry for many, many years, and I would have students come into my office and tell me that they're pregnant or that they have had sex or they've done something they shouldn't have done. And they'll tell me their story a little bit, and they'll say, well, we didn't mean to. <laughs> it was an accident. I was, I'm always like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it usually starts with a glance a smell, a thought, and it grows from there. We allow those desires that are within us to start to grow and fester. Uh, think about it this way. 
a car salesman at a new car lot, one of the best things he can do or she can do is get you into a test drive. Because once you get in the car, the percentages of you buying that car escalate astronomically. Because once you sit in that car and you start to smell that smell, and you start to see all the features that it has, and you start driving it, you're like, oh, this is smooth, this is really good, this is awesome. You start to experience just a little taste of what it would be like to own this car, and before you know it, they got you. It is enticing. And every new car is missing something. Anybody know what it is? It's the evidence of children. Of course this car is amazing. It hasn't had my two-year-old throw up and poop all over it. That's why it still smells amazing. It's awesome. That's why it's so enticing. When I think of temptation of the flesh, like many of you, I go back to college. Don't worry, it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. But in college, for me, I learned of a store a place that provided uh, something in, in that region of our country in the early 90s. It was a, a growing little company. It all started by Vernon Rudolph uh, back in the 30s. He decided to move his little store from Nashville, Tennessee uh, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And the reason that he chose Winston-Salem is because his favorite cigarette company, Camel, was made there. <laughs> because my favorite cigarettes are made here, that's where I'm going to move my little store. And so he does, and he starts to uh, sell what he was making out of his little store on Main Street in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And he also understood that it was amazing that people really started to gravitate towards the store when they were making their products between midnight and four. And so they decided, what if we just fed people what we're providing between midnight and four? And so they had this idea, we'll just turn on a little light and it'll let people know that they can come over here and they can grab one. And the little light is this. And I put it in here so it makes it look like Jesus is smelling. <laughs> this sign, this sign is evil. It is. And heavenly at the same time. But as a college student, and this is a time when Krispy Kreme was only located in the southeast. I didn't know anything about Krispy Kreme growing up in Indiana, but when I, when I landed in East Tennessee and we had a Krispy Kreme, I was like, oh man, and they'll actually give you the first one for free. I don't know if they still do that, but they used to. It's like, here, try one. <laughs> I'll take 18 dozen. And I'm going to take them back to the dorm. Because you can't just eat just one. And now they're making them all the time. So this little light is on all the time. But that's temptation. Hot, fresh, Krispy Kreme donuts. And all they had to do was turn on a light. And we would be there. The temptations of the flesh, whether it's through food or sexual temptation or any kind of addictions that we have, what the enemy will do is they'll make it sound and look so good. I have a weakness with food. Many of you guys know that. I've confessed to that. And it's not that food and sex are bad. They were actually designed for good, but they were never designed to master you. 
They were created for us, but we were not created for them. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says that you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. I hope he doesn't do away with food or the other, but hey. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. Romans 6.6 6 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I've heard a lot of times people will say, well, the devil made me do it. Satan made me do that. And my response is always, no, he didn't. Satan can't make you do anything that you do not want to do. Satan has no power over God in you. And when we say that, we're actually giving, when we say that he made us do it, we are giving him way more power than he deserves. Satan is on a leash. Does he have power? Yeah, but not that much. And he does not have power over God. It is the power of God in us and in you that has victory over him. So the next question is this. When does temptation come? And I find this fascinating because oftentimes it's when we feel the most blessed. It's when we are coming off of a mountaintop experience. After the dove comes the devil. For Jesus, this is after an amazing moment. Baptism. Having his dad say, man, good job, I love you, well done, you bring me joy. Oftentimes it comes after a great experience. And oftentimes it's because we feel that we are stronger than we actually are. We give ourselves a little too much credit when it comes to resisting temptation. I have a friend who's been a pastor for many, many, many years in Indiana, his name is David Woods. And I remember sitting uh, with David in his living room because I stayed with them one summer and we were watching something on TV of a, a downfall of somebody morally. And Dave looked at me and he said, you know, one of the things, Jeff, that is so important <clears throat> is that I never use the phrase, that would never happen to me. It, it would never happen to me. And the reason he said that is because the moment I say that, is the moment I start taking a step towards giving myself way too much credit and showing way too much pride. 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13 says, If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than what you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. This passage of scripture is probably the most misunderstood and misused scripture in all the Bible 
Because people will read this scripture and they will then claim and they will say, well, the Bible says that God will not give me more than I can handle, which is a lie from the devil. You will have more than you can handle, which is why you need God. It is not more than what he can handle, but it's the temptation. And what I find amazing is it, it says that he will show you a way out. There is always a way out. Think about the, the things that you've had, the temptations you've had, the strongest ones. Was there a way out? Yes. Every single time there was a way out. But it is our pride that oftentimes is our biggest downfall. Proverbs 16 tells us that pride comes before destruction and arrogant spirit before the fall. I find it interesting that Jesus even told his friend Peter, right before Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, and Jesus tells his friend Peter, he's like, hey man, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Do you remember what Peter's response was if you've read this? He's like, no! Not me. I would never do that. What my friend Pastor David Wood said, don't ever say that. He's like, I would never do that. I would never deny you. He goes as far to say that even if I have to die with you, that's what Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I would not deny you. And pride is the beginning of his downfall. Because shortly after, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter would deny one of his closest friends. Next question. Who is the primary target for being tempted? Who is the primary target for being tempted? And the reason I say primary is because everyone is a target. But here are the people that I would say are a bigger target. <laughs> they have a bigger target on their back. And the first one is this. Uh, people who are brand new to faith, people who are just giving their life to Jesus, those who are just baptized, and they come up, and they have that moment, and they are still not grounded in the Word, but they know they want to spend the rest of their life with Jesus, and he is, they are prime pickings, and Satan wants to come at them. They're vulnerable, just like little children, like babies. And Satan wants to attack them before they become grounded in God's Word, before they have a great understanding of the Scriptures. So when you or someone you know uh, is new to faith, it is so important for us to pray for them, to walk alongside of them, to lead them and help them in every single way because we know the attacks of the enemy are very likely. The others are the ones that I feel, or that Satan would feel like, is the greatest threat to the kingdom, the greatest threat to Satan's kingdom. So if Satan sees you as a threat, you're going to get hit. And most likely you'll get hit hard. And if people are not a threat to the kingdom, Satan probably won't waste his time. Next question, where does it come from? And we've already kind of answered this, but it comes from the grand entrance of your mind. 
2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4 says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And I would just say this, we need to quickly remove it from thought. It's the best way to remove it from thought is to protect the door of your mind. This is why we guard our eyes. It's why we guard our ears. We guard our minds. So two things. I want to close out with this. Takeaways, moving forward. The first one is this, and I, I would just tell people, if you don't want to be in a relationship with somebody, stop flirting. Stop flirting with them. Stop flirting with the devil. We flirt too much with the enemy. I really believe that. We flirt with, with second and third glances. In my years of student ministry, we would spend a lot of times going to lakes and beaches and places like Waterworld, and there's a lot of visual temptation. You see something attracting and appealing to the eyes, and so what I would tell the guys... <laughs> I may have to tell the girls too, but I would tell the guys specifically, I was like, guys, you're going to see probably more than you need to see today. And so if you see it with one glance, just say, thank you, God, for that creation and move on. Don't give the second, third glance. It's when you allow the glance to become a stare and the stare to become a thought. And that thoughts become the desires and eventually becomes the desires of your heart. But we flirt by the click of a website. Not just those sites, but things like Amazon Prime and gossip pages, any sites that lead us down a path that we shouldn't go down. We flirt by yoking ourselves with people who don't encourage us with godly behavior. We flirt by shopping or glancing at things that maybe we can't afford or we put in front of our giving to God. It's why we have window displays, for crying out loud. They're enticing. And if you see something that's appealing, you're just like, you know what, I'll just try it on. I have no intentions of buying that. But ladies, come on. Or Alex, sorry. You try something on, clothing. Well, that looks good. He's a fashion guru, so I can make fun of him a little bit. I heard one guy, he had a wife that came and said, I'm not going to buy anything, but I'm going to go shopping. He's like, nope, don't do it. Resist. Resist the devil. She goes, oh, I won't. But then she ended up seeing something in the window, and then she went into the dressing room, and she, she comes home, and she goes, I bought something. He goes, what'd you do that for? She's like, well, Satan made me do it. What do you mean Satan made you do it? Yeah, I was in the dressing room. I tried it on, and he said I look good. He's like... He's like, you should say, away from me, Satan. Get behind me. And she was like, he did. And he said, I look really good from that angle too. <laughs> Cheesy pastor jokes. If you don't want to date him, don't flirt. Don't flirt. 
And last is this, arm yourself with the Word of God. And I can't stress this enough, and I wish I had more time to really hit on this, but arm yourself into God's Word. Every single time that Jesus is tested by Satan, he immediately goes to a response of, it is written, and then he quotes Scripture that basically puts Satan in his place. It is written. It is written. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, you're going to see a whole list of armor of God. There's a belt of truth, a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, there's a shield of faith, there's sandals of peace, and there's one offensive tool in the arsenal, in the armor, and it's the sword of God's Spirit, the Word of God. We must be actively pursuing it. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The best place to store God's word is in your heart. And so you read it and it goes into your mind and then it is just a pursuit of getting it from here to here, one foot. So that when you are confronted, we can say strongly, for the scriptures say this, when somebody comes at you and they say, hey, I tell you what, you can't be for forgiven for this. You can say, the scriptures say this. It is the most important thing in our arsenal is the word of God that dwells within us. So we can go to battle. See, Satan thought he had Jesus. When he goes at Jesus because Jesus is physically weak, he greatly misunderstood that Jesus was spiritually strong. When Jesus has been fasting and praying and spending time with the Father for 40 straight days, Satan never had a chance. And I would challenge you to spend 40 days with the Father. Spend 40 days in the Word of God and see what happens. Jesus was physically weak but spiritually strong and I would encourage us to do the same. See, we'll spend time in the gym and we'll become physically strong but I see a Christian culture that spends very little time in the Word of God. We do it backwards. So my prayers for us is that we'll spend time in God's Word. So much that when you hear the lies, you'll know the truth and be able to detect it. You'll know the lie because you know the truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for laying this on my heart because I needed to hear this. And I pray that we'll have a a church full of folks that will spend the next 40 days in your word and it will just be the beginning of a lifetime pursuing the truth. So help us to resist and to be able to put on the full armor of God that we will not flirt with the enemy but we will flee and we'll resist with everything that we have. We ask this in your name.
Amen.